When I asked Reinaldo Morales what would be his dream about future changes in the field of communication and media studies, he emphasized the importance of building a global indigenous media network. About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Reinaldo Morales in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today my colleague and friend, Reinaldo Morales. Reinaldo is assistant professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media and Integrated Marketing Communications. And he is also a faculty fellow at the Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. He is a leader in environmental and science uh, education, uh, who advances knowledge integration processes and culture relevant education for local communities of practice worldwide. He is also a policy analyst and a media journalist who specializes in sustainable development and indigenous people's governance systems, territorial and environmental rights, international law and policy, land tenure, and management of genetic resources. His research and practice is around capacity building in collaborative curriculum development and community educational media projects with world indigenous peoples. His expertise includes innovation, implementation of technology, and community educational media. He did his undergraduate studies at the Universidad de Lima in Peru. He also did undergraduate studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In the first case, he was in social communication, in the latter in Latin American and Caribbean and Iberian studies. He did subsequently a master's uh, degree in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the area of curriculum and instruction and digital media. And he did a joint PhD also at Wisconsin-Madison in environmental resources and curriculum and instruction. Reinaldo, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you very much, Pablo. And it's a, it's a great honor to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, I, I I was in Peru, um, and I was born in 1963. And you have to remember, Pablo, that uh, at the, at the, the 60s was um, a very conflictive process in Latin America, um, in which I particularly lived under a military dictatorship since 1969. So the world was um, a different thing from 1963 to 19. 1969 for me and after 1969 
uh, in Peru, um, it, it, it was a completely different reality. While I was in high school, I learned about these, the, the, the Latin American literature. I was a, um, an, a voracious reader all my life, since I was a kid. Um, and I want I'm, I'm one of the members of my family that a few members of my family who reads voraciously, right? So even my grandpas, my aunties, everybody was just giving me books and because they knew that I wanted to read while my brothers and, and cousins were just playing like wild hogs. We, I was reading <laughs> in the couch and just my grandma was bringing stuff to me. So I, it was part of my practice just to, to, uh, to learn, to learn by, by myself. And so in, I, when I encountered the Latin American literature uh, of the 50s and 60s, the Real Maravilloso, right? The marvel, real, marvelous reality, this new narrative, it really populated my mind of many different things. So one of my really um, goals was to become a cinematographer. So I, I studied cinematography at the University of Lima. And my goal was to to be a writer. And actually, I went other, with other good friend. We created a, a literature um, and poetry magazine, and, and and we created a circle of studies of uh, Latin American literature. And and I engaged into cinematography, and and so I was pretty much into the art, artistic, and historical um, side of the reality. But after nineteen uh 85 when i was just in the university the reality really ate us when uh suddenly the an uprising and a huge political violence process started in peru with the shining path and the military and the society was engulfed in all these these processes so everything changed from there and from my dreams to become uh, uh, a cinematographer i was engaged in television and from social sensitivity, right? And the, 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 my interest on, on social changes, I was engaged in TV press and news. And so since I was probably in 1986, I was engaging news and press news, traveling nonstop across uh, Peru, the coast, the, the, the Andes and, and the jungle, the Amazon, and seeing so many different realities. And I am also indigenous from my ancestry, from my dad's side. Um, we are from, uh, my, my dad's side is from the south central part of Andes. So we have family in the mountains now living in Arequipa, in Cusco. Some part of members of my family still speak Quechua as a primary language. So I have a very strong indigenous identity. So much of the, my interests on understanding the political situation in Peru as a journalist and also as a scholar, it was completely embedded into my ident indigenous identity and my concerns and interests of how their world uh, could be could be different. How how could it be development and progress and education and justice for for them? And so you know, Peru. Some of the Latin American contexts are completely unbearable and, and they're very hard to to live with. And that's why um, at the end of my uh, work in, in TV press, and I became a documentary um, producer with an NGO, a major NGO, TV Cultura. We work for international development projects. And I also became 
a um, part-time teacher. I still had roles in in, uh, in in at night working as a part-time editor, but I didn't want to go anymore into the field as a as a cameraman or, or part of TV uh, news crews because the intensity it was it was it was too much. There was violence in the street. There was this, uh, Lima during the eighties and nineties was a very compli complicated place to live. So that's why uh, I moved into more of the NGO uh, sector and into education. And that's when I, at the end, um, worked for, for the government in educational communication projects at National Scope uh, on gender issues um, and, and big, big projects with uh, international development agencies. And that's when I moved to Peru, to United States in uh, 2000. And from there, I started uh, a process of reinvention because when you come to a, a completely different reality, it's like 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 moving to another planet, right? You have to to learn basic stuff, the cultural protocols, the social protocols, the, the I mean, the language, the intricacies of the language, etc. So uh, it took me a full decade, and I, I'm I'm saying that now, reflecting on that, I was lost in the world for ten years. I was lost for a decade. During the whole decade, I was living in a complete reality, the reality of the immigrants in the United States with all the different aspects, um, crazy event, events, uh, things that, that take place with it. So during that decade in which you were lost, using your word, in the, in the reality of the immigrant immigrating, right? What did you learn? Well, I learned first that uh, uh, that the complex identities of uh, of Latinos in in United States um, was not only one was was multiple and multiple realities and become be, became the expression of our relationships. Some of members of different uh, Latino communities were professionals. Some others were just from the working class. Some others had no education at all. Some others were coming from very marginal uh, social um, spaces and uh, and realities. Some people came displaced. Some people were were had uh, you know already important appointments and, and, and titles in their own countries and now us they were uh, starting from zero so that 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 reality really crushed us and i became a social worker i became uh, um, so i worked the first the first thing that i did when i came to 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 madison is that the first thing was just how do i contribute to this reality how what in my own upbringing can can make a difference here so I one day I picked up, I was working in a kitchen right when I came to Madison. And a friend of mine who was the owner of the restaurant, a, a Peruvian friend, who just gave me a favor to give me a, a they said, well, just the, the, at the very second day when I came, he gave me a, a little job in his, um, in his kitchen. And I, I grabbed the newspaper. It, was, it had only four pages. It was just a bifold. And it was a Latino newspaper uh, created by a Bolivian family. And so I grabbed the paper and I, the next day I, I went and looked for the director and said, I'm a journalist, I can develop your full newspaper. So I got, was hired and after three years, I left that paper with 42 
pages, a full color, all the editorial line completely. And this, this is now the lead newspaper in Madison. So it really made a, make a difference because it was just the, um, the very humble product of a, of a Bolivian family. And after that, I completed a cycle there and it grew into much a commercial venture. venture. So I moved and I was still working for, uh, for a Latino um, social work organization in Dane County. So I was assisting Latinos. And, and that's when I saw immediately, you know, mo most of the population, most of the people that I've seen, were, we were practically look the same. We are all Latinos. We could see each other in, the, in each other's face, but most of them had indigenous ancestry. Most of them, my friends say, and when I met at the end members of the North American indigenous communities, they look exactly the same. So among Latinos enough in Amer Native Americans, we all looked the same. <laughs> we were the only thing that, that that changed it was that the way our language, our customs, our our social historical processes, uh, uniquely in this country. But that's what I saw immediately. That I, in order for me to reconnect with the deeper spirit of the peoples that are with us, like us in the United States, I needed to reconnect the Native Americans. So that was my task, and I did it. That's very. Very interesting. So, so there are multiple lines of connection, multiple threads, yet there are also differences, right? Um, uh, and you alluded to this multiple times during your seminar. Um, how would you characterize what connects the, uh, you know, across the hemisphere? Um, what separates that and what have been in your you know experience the main challenges uh, of bridging across the different communities i would say the knowledge of about each other who how we know about each other is is critical there is a we have the language division right many indigenous peoples in the us feel completely completely um limited in their opportunities to connect with uh, Latin American indigenous peoples because of the language uh, gap, right? They don't, they don't speak Spanish. And, um, and we as members of indigenous peoples from Latin America also uh, face this um, self-marginalization, self-displacement, um, uh, cultural displacement, because the people who come to the United States usually came uh, uh, with the as voluntary um, immigrants who wanted to come here and start and depart from all their Latin American realities and live and aspire to live as any as any other American uh, to to embrace capitalism, to embrace a market and the job market, etc., and the economy and the economic relations. So they 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 don't see themselves. They didn't see themselves as as indigenous. In even people with very humble background, just manual workers and uh, uh, laborers, they didn't see themselves from from uh, as indigenous. And I was in the opposite side. I was just. Uh, coming from a very highly educated uh, background. Uh, but sharing the same realities as, as them and seeing myself closer to, to, the, to the indigenous side of myself. So it took really after a decade 
working with multiple people and talking, even when I started my cohort projects and talking with high school students in Madison, for example, many of the high school students and Latino students thought themselves as indigenous a decade after. And by 2007 or nine, I started uh, listening at the uh, how many, many students found out that they were members of indigenous societies in their own countries and they wanted to embrace that. And they were changing their denominations from in the census identification from, from uh, Latino, Hispanic to, to white to, to Native America, but not putting any tribal affiliation, for example. All these uh, differences in the way I related with different communities. I, one time in the summer, I worked with an after-school group uh, West High School, and I opened my house. This very basement where I'm right now was a media school. I had 10 students, 10, 11 students who were coming here to edit, to write, to do interviews, and we're going to the field, etc. And 70% of them were from different tribes in the US and 30% of them were non-Indigenous students. But the bridge between them was a concern about social justice, about nature, about the relationships of the world. So I think that's, that's what transpired among or across and above all the differences that, that I've seen uh, across racial, ethnic, social identities is the concern of society and how to make society, uh, the world better. And that's where at the end, the people that I interacted and, and, and sit among is the people who want to make a difference in the world, despite or regardless of the color of your skin or your ethnic differentiation. And if these these groups want to or these learners and members of different these these communities of practice have the intention of um, of making things for for a better world that's when i connected with them and and that's for me is the bridge this intention to save our differences and provide and contribute with solutions okay very interesting so that that's a strong activist right, dimension to your career that you have uh, considerably developed since, right? Um, so, so far you have talked about the, the international, the hemispheric side, localized in particular in Madison, first in Lima and then in Madison, even though in Peru you were traveling different parts of the country. How was the process of shifting once you were in the States from a local focus to all the work that you do in the UN and the work that you do with indigenous peoples throughout the world, really? Yeah. How was that experience? And it, it, it was uh, uh, an interesting experience. One day, maybe in 2004 or five, I was, my, my dad came to visit me. My dad, is, is um, Quechua descendant uh, from Arequipa in the mountains in South Central Peru. He came with my mom and we drove around Madison and suddenly we saw the corn crops. And my dad was horrified because he as a very experienced person in crops, in Andean crops, my dad saw that the, the corn plants were too close to each other. 
and it was all just to maximize yield in, in, in the production of the cups or there's a completely different paradigm and, and of intensive agriculture here in the northern hemisphere than in the south and my dad was horrified saying well it's that's that's not good he was horrified to see how immense crops when we drove to different outside farming communities in, in wisconsin my dad was seeing that the agriculture was wrong the agriculture was was really completely wrong in under these epistemologies and immediately started re researching about how and what those those differences suddenly what what peru had to offer what the andean culture what the indigenous peoples from peru um, had to offer to understand United States and to understand America in my own process, okay, um, was to remember of some of our most important cultural knowledge um, practices and foundations. First in agriculture, second one in, in medicine. Um, my family practiced traditional medicine um, forever. Um, uh, our language, our, our customs, etc. In terms of my practice, the i started pointing out these these differences and i work in science education at the time i worked since 2010 i worked for the department of biochemistry and a large science education uh, project as a master student uh, in, in in the incorporation of traditional knowledge in science in science curriculums so some of the videos that you have seen in my presentation the majority of them are still in uh, curriculums, science curriculums in more than 58 schools in north, northeast in northern Wisconsin uh, that are being used um, every day as, as uh, pedagogical tools. But the my encounter with these communities was um, in order to point out the many differences that existed between what the science education project intended to capture as premises of um, American Indian traditional knowledge in science, and they wanted to merge them. I realized, and this, is, this was a, a very important part of my dissertation, I realized that the knowledge systems that indigenous peoples in North America had in, in comparison with their counterparts in other parts of the world, let's say in Peru, South America, Latin America, and Caribbean, very, very small. They, in terms of cultural knowledge, in terms of um, agricultural knowledge, sustainable development, because of the the process, the colonization processes that they endured, basically that the, the isolation, the the displacement of these communities, the way in which they were forced to public assistance, and, and there were actually plans to exterminate them and to terminate their tribal status. So that they, history really hit them differently than, than us. And sadly, I, I understood that, and I saw that many elements that, that were survived in the indigenous communities um, and knowledge systems in other parts of the world could re really um, impact positively in the way in which American Indian communities see them, their own sustainable development processes. So at the, the beginning, scientists of the uh, the projects that I participated in were saying, well, but that's Peru. It, we are talking about United States. Uh, and or that that happens in 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 outside of United States in other in other contexts. And I was saying, hold on, there is a, a, a context in which indigeneity and indigenous knowledge systems 
coexisted and share lots of, of um, multiple elements that are common to their world. The, these are epistemologies that cross different nations. What you have in the United States, because of the reason of colonization and the way in which colonial institutions have crushed in indigenous culture in North America, is um, definitely the a, 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 only a piece of it, only a part of it. And there is no way that many tribal communities can look inside of the reservations that they, they won't they won't find many of the issues that they already lost um, in terms of language, culture, religion, practices of land management. Most of the tribal communities in the United States, when I started these, this research in 2009, did not have agriculture, nobody. Many tribal communities that do not even plant a lettuce. Some tribal communities have maintained the, the, the corn crops and some other crops, but in a minor scale, but most of them didn't. And so the process of food sovereignty have, has been has take a decade to create in many ways because of the encounter with indigenous people from other, other parts of the world and because North American uh, communities saw that people like look like them, people with the same epistemologies and cultural systems had these ancestral knowledge that they have lost. So I want to inscribe it, inscribe myself into that process, into the process of helping uh, American Indian communities to regain and restore that knowledge, that governance systems uh, through seeing those practices, through seeing those, those systems in other parts of the world. Hopefully I could inspire them to, to see um, the, their own you know, social knowledge systems and, and, and benefits and advantages through the, the, the lenses of Andean cultures. So for example, I, I, I cooked in indigenous uh, reservation, tribal communities. I cooked several times at Menominee communities for, for 30, 40 mothers, th three times. And I cooked Peruvian food because of the issues of food sovereignty and the issues of food dependence on, let's say, donated food, uh, food that within tribal communities, all donated um, is a surplus of, of the indigenous, of the, excuse me, the, the national uh, chain foods. So indigenous peoples have a donations uh, systems in, in food that have been donated by the government. And that's, that's what conforms all their diets. So in, in many cases, you see that the traditional food that they consume is the Indian taco, where the Indian taco is a fried dough. And it's something that very poor communities in Peru uh, have already ate or made their own in the 70s, for example, when they migrated to the, to the cities. But today, Peruvian cuisine and even the poor people in Peru, indigenous peoples, have a very rich and diverse um, nutritional uh, base, something that is a gap with North American tribes. So I, I engage in multiple practices of in exchange. I really made a huge emphasis that indigeneity crosses our world, crosses our different borders, that, that is a, there is a movement across the world. And when I found it through the policy making and the groups that were connected to the United Nations, for me it was you know eureka i found the people that i was looking for what today two decades almost two decades and the issues that they were working on really were fantastic and the only i wanted to inscribe myself in that work and contributing um in the academia and and and, and the circles that i participate on seeing the value of these exchanges and now today i make 
huge emphasis in my career in, in these exchanges. And you are right. One a professor uh, told me when he was hearing, listening to the things that I proposed, he was saying, he was saying to me, you are more than a, a community organizer than any other thing. And I would say, yes, I am, because community organizing is, is a very urgent thing that, that is needed. But within that, there is a lot of science research um, that I want to bring on. It's just not to mobilize or, or organize by the sake of organization. As I said in my presentation, it's not just the media for the media or organized for, for, for just just for that. We need to organize around certain important um, issues that transpire and cross all indigenous nations in the world and are part of their political, economic, social, cultural restoration processes today. And that's what I what I saw important and I highlight today that I've seen finally through my research how these indigenous peoples across the world are restoring their world without waiting for nation states, governments, or institutions to recognize them. Fascinating. So how does your academic career, when did it emerge uh, in the context of this story? Because it wasn't immediately after you came to the US and it seems that it wasn't the case in, in Peru. So your academic career has it's an American and US story in part with, with global reach, but it, it originated here. And how has your experience been uh, within the academy as a researcher and a professor? Well, the now is the first time that I uh, join a private university. And the world is completely different. The academic world is different in both in both uh, um, settings, what happens in a, in a, a federally funded or state university is different because most most of the um, study areas and fields that are uh, important for 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 state universities have to be related to the taxpayers. Um, uh, understanding of what is important for, for state economies and the future of job market, state affairs, etc. Everything has to reflect the, the state. And on top of that, I was part of a land grant institution, you know, this, that there is a huge emphasis on issues of agriculture and land management, things like that. At the same time, much of the federal um, funded universities and state universities have this interest on um, looking for funding through different grants that are very related to the industry demands, industry needs. So much of the grant uh, process in, uh, in, in UW-Madison is related to, to, to the industry. And I've seen also myself um, in a completely different attitude re regarding that, because once we talked about the indigenous community that we were working, we are talking about 11 tribes in the state of Wisconsin that we work with, 11 tribes um, that were an important uh, group of people in control of important geographical areas uh, that were still being seen as a problem. But once we saw the importance of these 11 peoples, none of the industries during the full decade that I, that I, that I devoted to, to UW-Madison, none of the industries that were part of the 
grant funding sources had any interest or had any proper uh, interest or connection with issues or matter that mattered tribal communities. And that's one one thing that I that I learned. It's a very complex um, landscape once we devote your areas of uh, work to indigenous peoples. Um, in a private university with Northwestern, I am completely, you know, thrilled and and and, and glad and honored to be part of this wonderful uh, new faculty and and a new time in which indigenous issues and, and indigenous topics matter for academia and and i attribute that to the liberty of the, the, the academic and, and freedom the larger uh, academic freedom that we have in a private university than in a in a state university um, and still we have these these challenges because many important researchers and faculty and people are in research in, in in state universities state research universities i would say so i think it would be important to um, to continue having ties with with these this body of researchers and in my personal case i think that these opportunities now that i have with northwestern in terms of influencing more these two programs of uh, study that i have medill and buffett institute in the affiliated programs that i'm part of um, are living in a new time we are living in a complete new time in which indigenous issues are being considered differently now with a lot of weight and a lot of understanding. Just as an illustrative point, one of the most important uh, programs that have been created in the last five years across uh, the university landscape in US and around the global north are indigenous study networks. So there are lots of indigenous uh, study centers in that started with huge funding across the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, and across the world as well. So there is a huge interest now in, in topics and issues um, around indigenous peoples. And, and that is also a confirmation that my interests of several years ago were in the right direction. So even that, that uh, there is a still a misunderstanding or confusion about the how um, uh, pertinent or relevant are indigenous issues in our modern world there is a lot of misunderstanding about that um, there is also huge support and understanding of, of faculty like you and others that understood that this world is a very diverse world and there are important groups of people that have important solutions for the most important problems uh, that we face today we are uh, in a very critical time of our environmental uh, life uh, in, the, in the world that we will see in the next 10 or 15 years will be completely different of the world that we see today. And indigenous peoples have a huge uh, number of solutions to do that. So that, that requires for us an understanding to, to open a space, open the doors for new ways of, of, of making business, for new ways to understand the world, to, for new solutions, technical, technological, uh, epistemological, educational, um, and, and nature-based, um, in which other actors can participate legitimately and not be uh, marginalized as it happened in, in, the, in, in the recent past, just for the sake of maintaining control. That, that force control is costing us so much and we, we cannot afford it anymore. Absolutely. And 
you know, another dimension that is very rich in your professional trajectory is your participation in the policy domain, right? Uh, in particular, at the global level with the United Nations, etc. So how did you uh, get involved with these organizations and um, what are some lessons learned from doing the work that you've been doing in that space? Mm -hmm. In 2016, I was very lucky that I was teaching a seminar at the University of Wisconsin-Madison called Global Sustainability and Indigeneity. Um, and at that time, we had um, a class that was virtual. Um, as I said, we had members of, of um, indigenous communities from all around the world that we were connected virtually, uh, despite many time differences. And members of some members of this community were part of the College of Menominee Nation because one edition of that seminar took place at the College of Menominee Nation. The, the Menominee Nation had a very uh, prominent researcher and policy um, analyst also who was part of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. And in 1983, she was, well, her name is Ingrid Washinawatok, and she was killed by the FARC in, in Colombia, Colombia in 1983. And she was killed um, along with other two American um, researchers and activists. At the time, they were actually trying we're work they were working with the united nations permanent forum on indigenous issues on indigenous rights but the FARC considered them differently uh, as american spies or i don't know but killed her since then the, the menominee nation had a very conflictive relation that was the only person the most prominent person of a u.s tribal community participating on the u.n uh, UN level. So it was my task to reconnect the Menominee Nation back to the United Nations Permanent Forum. So I brought a delegation many years after, uh, many, many years after, I brought it back to the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and I came with three members nominated by the, by the, by the Menominee Nation of Northeast Wisconsin and we started our journey. And by then, uh, in 2016, so my topic was, or my interest was to connect with everyone and connect the menominees with everyone. Um, so I started learning and meeting with lots of people participating in all possible committees. The, the attendance to the UN Permanent Forum is annual, is for a couple of weeks, and most of indigenous representatives from all around the world attend. And we have closed meetings, we have side events, we have um, technical and committees, etc. Everything happens in, in, in there with projections to future uh, partnerships and, and contacts and collaborations with other indigenous societies. That's why I established a base of people that I could relate better in my future work. And I started coming as an observer. We returned in 2016 and 2018. By 2018, I was already uh, working in my dissertation about the protection of uh, indigenous genetic resources. And by 2016, there was the first re report that I attended, the release of that report at the UN um, headquarters of uh, the release of the World Report on the Protection of Cultural and Genetic Resources from the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO. Uh, which is part of the Convention of Biological Diversity. And that opened my eyes, That because the two frameworks that were considered at the time were the protection of cultural 
resources and genetic resources. When we are about when we talk about cultural resources, we're talking about language, customs, traditions, um, um, culture, etc. Lots of even recording of uh, artifacts, etc. Lots of people were working already on that arena. But I knew that uh, very few people were working on the on the side of the protection of genetic resources because it needed um, it needed hard science. So I decided that that would be my topic because that was a very important thing. The protection of cultural genetic resources involves a lot of um, what is called a bundle of rights, land rights, environmental rights, air, water, um, uh, soil quality, uh, gender rights, land tenure rights, human rights, etc. All kinds of different areas that are related to well, intellectual property, which is a, has a huge economic implications. It's also in, involved in the in the protection of genetic resources. That was my topic. And the interdisciplinarity and interrelations of different knowledge systems and how they understood genetic resources, that was my topic. So <clears throat> I continued my involvement with uh, with the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues until in 2018, I was invited to participate at the Convention on Biological Diversity. And I was I was working already at the, with the United Nations um, media caucus indigenous media caucus that in parallel so i was working in in a media um, group at the un and i was working with a biological research and policy network at the same time because my you see my my joint uh phd is in education and in, in environmental sciences so i had to honor these two parts and i'm it's not that i'm a split in two sections that are not um reconcilable is is that both are interrelated and the venues that i found is through education through science research we can approach to um, multiple areas that have direct impact on uh, right right space approaches and that's what what in uh, produce a, a higher involvement on un circles i attended the convention of biological diversity the cop 14 in egypt <clears throat> in since then, I, I was part of the high-level political forum on indigenous issues, a part of the indigenous mayor groups. I attended um, later um, this last year, I attended the uh, climate change conference in Glasgow um, as part of the uh, indigenous, international indigenous delegation. And now I'm, I'm part of and supported by, in a, as a consultant of an Amazonian, Peruvian Amazonian Council of Tribes, the Chipibo, Conibo, Seteo that manage and they own traditionally 30 million hectares of, of primary forest in protected areas in Peru. So I became their consultant on issues of biodiversity, uh, conservation and climate change. Since then I'm ratified and, and my credentials to UN come from my affiliation to the Consejo Chipibo Conibo, um, whose um, president and chair is the one that supports and nominates me and now I'm nominated to come to the uh, Convention of Biological Diversity. There are new um, meetings that are taking place right now in Geneva with uh, um, two mechanisms. The subsidiary body of technical and technological advisory board is meeting and the, the scientific body on, on implementation number three is also meeting in Geneva among with other interrelated meetings and the international indigenous delegation are attending and, and I hope that I would I would do um, in the past uh, or last year the Buffett Institute um, 
supported me, and I hope that I would I would get again the support to go to this this new meeting of the CBD and participate on with the Indigenous International Delegation, as I've been doing in the in the last years. So it's a long road. None of that is many many cases published, etc. There are many indigenous delegates who are experts who come anonymously and they, they don't they don't have any recognition from their own institutions. Most of the people are really in voluntary level. We are not paid, etc. But we work fiercely on reviewing every detail in every language that is produced at the UN level, in uh, technical recommendations, policy recommendations, and mandates, etc. To see how they match, how they lack the rights-based approach that we consider relevant for indigenous peoples. Important. So what do you see as the role of media and communication in these processes of global indigeneity connections and of rethinking uh, issues of sovereignty, issues of knowledge, issues of rights? What, what I see is, is this difference of the outside and internal world for indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples know who they are, right? They are, in many cases, they are more aware of their own history than non-indigenous peoples. If you see public education curriculums, and I'm part of that, I did serious studies on curriculums um, across the United States. Reference of indigenous peoples are very limited to several grades on middle school and the early ages of high school, early grades, and only tangentially, only um, through um, language, culture, and traditions, and that's it. Pretty much, much of the history of the United States has been also distorted to, to make the, the history of indigenous peoples completely oblivion to, to American, the great American history. Um, they're not celebrated, the indigenous peoples continue being a, a problem. So my, my approach to these realities has been that I see a gap between in, in, in the mainstream uh, where I live, where I most of the time interact with the spaces in which indigenous communities uh, exist. And I, I am there too. I, I, I go to these places and I see that there is a huge awareness of their own cultural systems now that the internal media and internal media processes dynamics have played a huge role connecting indigenous and tribal communities from within. Um, in 2018, for example, we, the UN Indigenous Media Caucus commissioned a study of the status of world community, indigenous community radios, uh, where I, we, I participated. We evaluated the, this, this study and published uh, with Cultural Survival, uh, which is an NGO on indigenous issues. And it revealed the importance of these local uh, means of communication for the protection of uh, journalists, the protection of uh, com indigenous communities in isolated areas, and to maintain an, an internal communication system. But it happened in many parts of the world in rural areas, where at the same time in urban areas, nobody else in none of the mainstream uh, populations in, in those countries knew about indigenous peoples. And so what I learned is indigenous peoples can have all the medias as, at their disposition, all the radios and internet-based medias, but they could continue being uh, oblivion, continue being completely absent and invisible to, 
to the mainstream uh, audiences. And that's because of that, because of that lack of visibility, many um, human rights and environmental rights violations take place. Many um, violent issues take place. Many uh, deforestation and, and depletion of natural, natural resources take place. So communication right now in a centralized um, media um, initiative is necessary to link all the experiences of indigenous peoples to the global sustainable development goals and to the policies and mandates that the United Nations bodies have enacted for the respect of indigenous peoples across the world. So we need now an external um, or a global network that act upon the external audiences. We need to educate the world about who the indigenous peoples are, what they represent for the world, what are the laws that related to them, what are the, the obligations of the countries and, and all citizens with them. Um, in the United States, it's, 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 a, it's a critical issue. They are complete uh, uh, lack of knowledge of the local citizens about the treaties that were signed with indigenous peoples in many different areas that affect the way in which in, um, American Indian tribes relate with water rights, fishing rights, hunting rights, um, issues of natural resources, and the way in which local populations should respect indigenous people. It's appalling. There are many differences, and there are things that, that cannot continue. So we need to develop means of communication that can educate the Western audiences about who the indigenous peoples are, what are the importance and what their contributions are to the sustainable development goals and how they should be respected and supported. And that, that's why we need desperately, urgently, a, uh, a, a, a media network that, that sees to the outside world. Perfect segue to my last question then. So, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, mm -hmm. what would you wish for? I, I wish that we review the history of the, the world from a different lenses than only the history of capitalism, um, because it only tells a portion of the reality, the social reality of the world. I would, if I would have magical powers, I would uh, engage in a process of rewriting um, the unofficial history and to use media and to use the media tools to recreate, revisit, retell the unofficial story of the world and see how these lessons uh, that we are learning through our practice, our policy groups, our practice groups, our learning communities, groups and networks, how they reconcile in a complete new different vision of the world. We need to see the world as a plurinational reality, plurinational reality, right? We need to see um, that how communities can uh, can work together, even despite of their, their, their huge and critical cultural differences. We need to understand the world differently. I would like to um, influence the way in which countries contribute with a small contributions to pay for a huge indigenous media network. Um, if I would have all the money in the world, I would fund an, a global indigenous media network. I would I would like to create the indigenous CNN, right? Uh, and and give opportunities to for all the media media producers around the world. To, to bring in, into this platform and to have a channel in a repository where we can curate um, media media content and create an, an, a non-stop 
world news program like Al Jazeera. I, I, I really like Al Jazeera, for example. Wonderful documentaries, wonderful news programs, and many of the things that you can that, that you learn in US uh, through the normal classical channels, you would never ever see them in Al Jazeera and vice versa. Lots of things that, that happen across the US that even are, are told in Al Jazeera and not in CNN or, or, or NBC. Um, so I envision a, a media at the service of the peoples who were um, hidden, who were displaced, who were the most, the less favored people at the service of a new world in which development is for everyone, in which uh, the, uh, the, the, the premises of, of um, a better world for everyone, the, the most important discoveries, benefits, of our modern world crosses also the recognition of the of the survivors of colonization and the ways in which their knowledge systems and their 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 worlds also matter i would like to live in a world in which indigenous peoples matter and exist and are visible wonderful thank you very much renaldo for sharing your time with us your knowledge your experience your wisdom and this very important message at the end so thank you very much Thank you so much, Pablo, and I look forward for any other opportunities to connect with uh, uh, your center and, and all the wonderful community that are part of it. Thank you. thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.